Our scripture reading today is from John 7, verses 1 through 9. If you'd like to follow along in our Pew Bibles, this is on page 892. After Jesus went about in Galilee, he would not go about in Judea, because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand, so his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time is not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about it that it works, that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Morning. morning. Let's uh, pick up from where Myra read. We'll read a few more verses up until verse 14, and then we'll uh, take it from there. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people, while some said, he is a good man. Others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. Gospel of John is 21 chapters. We are in chapter 7, so we're one-third of the way through. And you're thinking, if you've been with us in this entire series, this is like the fastest we've ever gone through with the Bible, right? Like, I can't believe this guy is really doing a chapter a week. Um, But we're attempting to look at the Gospel of John chapter by chapter Uh, with the intent on seeing things from this 30,000-foot perspective, a broader perspective compared to what we usually do in the Scriptures by going verse by verse. And since we've looked at the Gospels of Mark and Luke in a verse-by-verse way, uh, you can listen to those sermons in, in our archives. The hope is to look at the Gospels from different vantage points to get a better understanding of the Scriptures as a whole, which I think we've been able to do with the Gospel of John. I hope that's happening. It's really early on in Jesus' ministry here, and these religious leaders are looking to kill Jesus. I don't know how this strikes you, but for me, it's kind of odd that someone wants to murder somebody else. That's a very extreme thing, and from their own perspective, it's breaking their laws. It is breaking one of their Ten Commandments, and they're really thinking this. And Jesus also knows that they want to kill him. And anyone reading this story, anyone living at the time of Jesus, kind of looks at this and just thinks, this is kind of overblown. This is kind of silly. Murder him? For what? Kill him for what? Because is what Jesus has done so far, is that justified for killing someone? So it's kind of crazy because Jesus wasn't guilty of murder. He didn't kill anyone. So he's guilty or, or he, they want to have him suffer under capital punishment. It's just not a justified charge to want someone dead. So it just seems kind of really odd. Now what Jesus taught 
was very challenging to the religious leaders, and, and these religious leaders reject Jesus' teaching, and it is so bothersome to them that, that they want him dead. So the question to ask is, why? And when we look at this why, there are really only two options when it comes to Jesus. You can either wholeheartedly accept him by faith as your Lord and Savior and Master, and then on the other hand, you reject him. And if you reject him, he becomes intolerable to you. And in chapter 7, Jesus was encouraged by his brothers to go to the Feast of Booths. His brothers don't believe that he's the Christ, the Messiah, and they are just messing with Jesus. You should go. Like, oh, you should go show your disciples what you're all about and, and show them what you got, right? Go to Jerusalem and publicly show them what you can do. And these guys are just egging him on, messing with Jesus. And eventually Jesus does go to this Feast of Booths, and there's this growing opposition, there's this growing misunderstanding against Jesus, which is what we have here in verses 15 through 36, and I'll leave that for you to read on your own. We're going to skip down to verse 37, where Jesus gives this invitation. In Jesus' invitation, uh, this is found in verses 37 through 39, and this chapter is about this growing opposition against Jesus. So we've already found that these religious leaders are conspiring against Jesus to kill Jesus, and that starts back in chapter 5, and it just continues to grow. And then we read this verse in chapter 7, verse 1. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Then you go down to verse 19. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me. Verses 25 and 26, some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? Verse 30, so they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Verse 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Why do I bring this up? Because in this chapter, we are already given five occasions from verses 1 through 32 where this opposition is looking to kill Jesus, is looking to arrest Jesus, and this opposition is just continuing to grow. Now, if you look at this, you'll see this key word there. It's this word muttering. Muttering. And this is partly why this opposition grows. This is partly why the misunderstanding grows. Look at verse 12. And there was much muttering about him among the people. And then also verse 32. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. Unfortunately, this is something that happens all the time. Within our families, within our church, our workplaces, our schools, our media, Muttering. Mutter, mutter, mutter. Like always muttering. Always muttering. And the thing is, it, it, it's so destructive. So destructive. Why? Because it's so hidden. It's not like out front. It happens behind the optics. Because when you talk to someone, oh, how, how are you doing? How's your family? And then they talk back, like, oh, that, that person is like so terrible. And you know what they did? And there's all this muttering stuff. 
And it's what's behind the optics that is so destructive. People who say things behind others' backs when they wouldn't say it to their face. Muttering. And when you mutter, it's often not about good things. When you mutter, it's usually a negative thing. And so here's something Jesus said about the words that we speak. Matthew chapter 12, starting in verse 34. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. Oh, for by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Those are such sobering words that are coming from our Lord. And all I can do is pray for mercy and forgiveness for those who have spoken carelessly. Because there are so many who have done this very thing, whether it's in our families, in our church, workplaces, schools, media, all these different places, muttering, grumbling. So here we have this muttering. This muttering that grows the opposition against Jesus. And here's something to realize when you are on the side of Jesus. Sooner or later, there will be muttering and grumbling against you. Sooner or later, things will be said behind your back. And the things said aren't speaking well of you most of the time. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. This is very revealing about us, what we say, what we mutter about, what we grumble about. And chapter 7 shows us that this opposition against Jesus continues to grow, also shows that there's this misunderstanding, this confusion about Jesus that continues to grow, because they're not talking directly to Jesus. They're just muttering behind his back, and essentially, the question everyone is having while they mutter is, who's Jesus? Who is that guy? And there's so many questions surrounding Jesus in chapter 7. Did you notice all the question marks in chapter 7? There's so many. I didn't actually tally up if these were the most questions within a chapter, but it very may well be. But there are 19 questions just in this chapter. A bunch of questions all regarding Jesus, all about Jesus. And I think the questions are good. Questions are great. Jesus already has showed them his power, his authority, his divinity, his humanity, and they have a lot of questions. Why? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. There is life without the Holy Spirit, and there is life with the Holy Spirit. And unfortunately, we have a lot of people who say they are Christians. We have a lot of churches, but they don't have the Holy Spirit. And so when the Holy Spirit is present, there are questions to be asked by faith to seek understanding, that that faith is seeking understanding. And when the Holy Spirit is not present, there's this muttering, there's this grumbling, and questions are really good because they clear up confusion. You ask somebody about something and the confusion is cleared up with those questions. And both of these things are happening in chapter 7. There are a ton of questions, but there's a grumbling and there's muttering. And people are just doing this 
at the same time. And whenever there's the presence of Jesus, you can be sure that there is going to be conflict there. And we think Jesus is the Prince of Peace. How can there be conflict when the Prince of Peace is present? But it's true because the enemy is real. The opposition is real. There will always be conflict wherever the presence of Jesus is until this second coming where he just kind of lays it out and that's that. That's the end of it. But as of now, always conflict. All the time. Opposition is just growing. Confusion is just surrounding Jesus. And this is growing all the time. And then we get into the main verses of this chapter, verses 37 through 39, and this is Jesus' invitation. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures has says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. I don't know if you guys have noticed this phrase, cried out, in verse 37. Because this is a very, very unusual thing for Jesus to do. He does not do this. Jesus does not cry out very often. And it's the same Greek word that is used in verse 28 for the verb or for the word proclaimed. It's the same Greek word. Verse 28. So Jesus proclaimed, it's the same word, cried out, as he taught in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and yet him you do not know. And so this crying out is a very unusual thing with Jesus. He's not one to cry out. He's not one to lift up his voice. He's usually kind of calm, gentle, collected, and he just kind of speaks. He doesn't cry out. And this is prophesied about him in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 42, this is said about Jesus. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Matthew wrote about this. He quotes Isaiah 42 in Matthew chapter 12. All this to say, this is very atypical behavior for Jesus to cry out, to lift up his voice. Jesus is not the person that likes to bring attention to himself, but in this case, it's appropriate. In most cases, it's an inappropriate way for Jesus to express himself, but here he finds that I'm going to do this. Characteristically, he is gracious with his voice. He is gentle, he is calm, he is tender. That's typically Jesus. And then verses 28 and 37 are these two appropriate occasions in this chapter where Jesus demands to be heard. He demands to be heard. And what Jesus has to say on these two occasions were really important, and he raised his voice to demand attention to what he had to say. Now, we have to get some context around this in terms of why he did this. He cries out this invitation in verses 37 through 39, and we need to look at what was happening during this time. So, verse 37 says, 
On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Now the feast that he's speaking about here is the Feast of Booths, also called the Feast of Tabernacle. In Hebrew, it's called Sukkot. It's this annual festival. It happens during the fall when people would come together and in their houses they would put up these tents. And they would reside in these tents even though they can live inside their house. But they'll put it on their porch or they'll put it on their yard or gardens or whatever. And they'd build these pretty cool tents. Um, I was in Israel one time during Sukkot and it was pretty cool. They had like disco balls in these tents and these lights and they'd have music like they had this and it was like it was like a party out there like people are eating and they're like dancing it's like it's really lively and it's so cool that's what this is like this is modern day I don't know what they did way back when but that's modern day and they get all of this idea from Leviticus chapter 23 in Leviticus 23 God instructed them to live in these booths for seven days so that the future generations would know God brought you out of the land of Egypt while they were living in these tents and then the tabernacle had to be moved. There was no temple. God brought you through all of this and he provided for you manna and he provided for you water. God provided direction for you and protection for you. For 40 years he did this and delivered you into the promised land despite your sinfulness and your rebellion and your rejection and God was with them. And this is to celebrate this and it's a huge celebration and it was during the time when, when the grapes and the olives were harvested in Israel and people were thanking God for this harvest and they'd use this time to pray for the next year's harvest and for rain and it's just a really joyous time in Israel, a really celebratory time and some people they just go all out with these things. Seven days of partying out in a tent. Cool. That's how it is today. Back then, a little different, no electricity, but back then, it was like this. Back then, a priest would lead this procession of people, there's all these tents and everything, and they'd lead a procession to the Pool of Siloam. They'd get to the Pool of Siloam, and they'd gather the water from the pool, and there they'd gather and they'd sing, and they'd praise God, and they'd worship and pray, and they'd share about God's provision of water, And they'd recite passages like Isaiah chapter 12. It's a short chapter of Isaiah. Let me read it for you. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and I will not be afraid for the Lord God is my strength and my song and he has become my salvation. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the people, proclaim his name is exalted, sing praises to the Lord, for he has done graciously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Say beautiful things like that about God about his provision, about his protection, about his deliverance. And the priest would gather this water from that pool, and then he would lead this procession up to the temple. 
So they'd all walk up to the temple from the Pool of Siloam, and then they'd go around the altar while the priest was pouring water out on the base of the altar from the Pool of Siloam, the sacrificial altar at the temple. And this was a symbol of longing for God to give them this water that would eternally satisfy them. And so they believed that Messiah would give them this everlasting living water as the priest was do that. And he'd do that day after day. And then on the seventh day, this is the big day, the last day, the great day. What was different about this day is they would go around that altar seven times. It's kind of like this culminating climax of the event, right? They'd go around it seven times, pouring water on the base of the altar. And then there would be this moment when things started to wind down to close the week of celebrating, and you know how that is, whether it's a wedding or whatever celebration, there's like this, yay, cut the cake, and then after that, it's just kind of kind of like a lull, right? Like there's this celebratory thing, and then it, a lull. You know, you're, you're weak with your family during Christmas time, right? It's like that. All week long, you have your meals, you get together, uh, we're going to go shopping, we're going to do this, and then whatever that ending thing is, like, gift exchange or dinner or whatever and then after that it's like okay I've got to put the dishes away it's just kind of like that lull that's kind of what's happening here with Jesus there's this lull at the high point of it all and so here on the seventh day the last day of the great day that this dramatic act seven times pouring the water it's coming to a close and the people are still thirsty the people thought Messiah still had not come And they're still in need for their sins to be forgiven. And it's at this point that verse 37 happened. That's the context. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. A lot more rich to the story now, right? You know what's happening. You know why he did this. You know why he said this. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart, out of Jesus' heart, will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus has not yet glorified. So what's going on here? All this celebration, all this liturgy, all this drama, all this religion... It's pointing to who. Just like we said last week, it's not a what, it's a who. It's pointing to who can take away this thirst. Because they're all still thirsty for Messiah. They're all still thirsty for the Christ. And Jesus is telling them, that's who I am. All this stuff you guys are doing and waiting for, that's who I am. That Jesus is the one to satisfy this spiritual thirst. Like you guys don't have to do this thing anymore. Even though it's fun and could do it for the fun of it. But as far as like what you're expecting from it, I'm here already. And so now you fast forward in John's gospel to when the soldier pierced Jesus' side in John chapter 19 verse 34. And what does it say? It's the only thing that John records out of all the gospels. It's actually very cool in terms of the picture. And maybe you'll read this differently. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. 
not a coincidence that John has been writing about living water in these past two chapters and the Samaritan woman at the well and talking about living water and we're at this point at the Pool of Siloam with the Feast of Booths that he's talking about everlasting water. It's not a coincidence that John writes about being pierced on his side and there's blood and water. See, our deepest needs are met because of Jesus' blood and water. Jesus' death on the cross, exalted as Savior, is when the Holy Spirit was sent to us to usher in his presence, which satisfies our everlasting thirst. In Numbers chapter 20, the people are in the wilderness. They're complaining and grumbling, and and they cry out to Moses about their thirst. Like, we're so thirsty. We're in this desert. We're going to die out here. And they're telling Moses, we're going to die. What does God do? God provides water from the rock, right? Moses struck the rock and the water came out of the rock for the people. That was this Old Testament picture of Jesus whose side was struck. On the cross, his blood and water provide salvation, deliverance for his people. That water symbolized the Holy Spirit who satisfies our spiritual needs by bringing us to faith in Jesus Christ, to drink of Jesus Christ. Everyone needs their spiritual thirst quenched. You're always thirsty. You're always looking for that next thing. Everyone has spiritual needs, and that's only quenched by the living water of Christ. We all need the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, to reveal Jesus to our hearts. And it's not until those things happen that Jesus is then glorified in our lives. It's how it happened for the disciples at Pentecost. It's how it happens for us today. Our spiritual thirst, our spiritual need is satisfied in Jesus Christ. The gift of the Holy Spirit is given to us by Jesus Christ. And then the glorifying, the honoring, the exalting of Jesus Christ in my heart through my life. The question is for all of us this morning. Is your spiritual thirst quenched by Jesus Christ? Have you received the Holy Spirit? Is Jesus glorified in you? You notice, like, if you answer yes to any of those questions, you're a believer. It's not like you have to answer each one of those. But they all go with one another. They're all hand in hand. You get one, you kind of get... Yes is to all three of those things. So if you're still thirsty, or if you haven't received the Holy Spirit, or Christ has not been glorified in you, this is your invitation. Verse 37 through 39 is your invitation, and Jesus is crying out to you, saying like, I'm it. This is it. This is for you. You can come back and and we can party and we can do this tent stuff, but you don't have to thirst anymore. You can just do that just to participate and celebrate what happened with God's deliverance in the past. And Jesus invites you to drink, to drink of this living water in your heart and the Holy Spirit will be with you and you will be forgiven of your sins. You will be a new creation. You will drink and you will be satisfied by the living water of Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your servant, John. 
who gives us different perspectives of what happened as a witness of, of what you have been doing. Lord, thank you for all the ways you provide for us and, and your deliverance. I ask, Lord, especially for those who have not yet received from you the Holy Spirit, who are still thirsty, I pray that they would receive from you today. That this pool of Siloam moment where you are crying out this invitation, I pray that this strikes them in such a way that they would take that step of faith to receive of you. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to take communion now, and if you uh, don't have these elements, just raise your hand and we can get that to you. And if any one of you is wanting prayer or needing prayer, uh, Mike, who's one of our elders, is in the left front pew. He'd love to pray with you. Let's take out that first element symbolizing the body of Christ broken for us. If you have something you're harboring in your heart, why don't you deal with that with Christ first so that it, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks that you don't do the muttering, you don't do the grumbling, but that you're able to freely question, to put down the confusion, that you're no longer opposing Christ or his children. If you're okay with that, let's take this together in Jesus' name. The fruit of the vine symbolizing the blood of Christ spilled for us. And as that soldier pierced his heart, the blood and water came out. Lord, thank you for your forgiveness. Lord Jesus, so costly your sacrifice. But you offer all of humanity salvation through it. We are grateful to you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.